morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, May the 24th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Ethiopian authorities arrest more than 4,000 people in the northern Amhara region, and the displaced in the Afar region say they cannot return to their homes. The destruction is absolutely systematic. It is house by house that they looted. An institution, the government institutions, they either burnt them, exploded them, or uh, they tore out all the machinery, all the technical stuff, just ripped it apart. In Uganda, civil society and opposition groups say the latest arrest of former presidential candidate Dr. Kiza Besije violates his constitutional rights. Dr. Besije is exercising uh, his right as a citizen. And under our constitution, one of the duties of a citizen is exactly what he's doing. And there's nothing illegal, there's nothing unconstitutional about a demonstration. And the 14th edition of the Dakar Biennale, featuring the works of hundreds of artists from around the world, kicks off in Senegal's capital. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the violence may have stopped in most parts of Ethiopia's Afar region, but Afaris forced to leave their homes after Tigran forces occupied the region say they can't return home. And it's not just Tigran civilians who are affected by the conflict. Displaced people from the neighboring Afar region say attacks on their towns have left homes and livelihoods utterly destroyed. Linda Giftash reports from Semera in Ethiopia. Roughly 700,000 people have been displaced in Ethiopia's Afar region following violence tied to the civil conflict in the Tigray region, according to the United Nations. The Afar region had long-standing close ties with the Tigray region, so when forces aligned with the Tigray People's Liberation Front attacked, residents were taken by surprise. Halima Tahir Ismail is a displaced Afari living at a camp 100 kilometers from the region's capital of Samara. She says she was asleep when she heard shots from heavy machine guns. She and her family woke up in a war zone. She says husbands and children were scattered. People fled their homes because of the heavy fighting. Ismail says she fled with three of her children, all under the age of five, with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They, like other displaced people, now rely on food aid. She's heard from those who stayed in the Afar region where the Tigrayan forces attacked and that the grocery store she owned was ransacked and destroyed, as was her family's home in Konaba. She asks, how can they go back to Konaba? If they return, she says there is no water, property and household utilities like furniture were looted. Ismail says whether you were well off like herself or poor before the war, now everyone has been left equally impoverished. Valerie Browning, a nurse and volunteer in the region for over 30 years, visited northern communities of Afar days after troops pulled out in April, a condition of which warring groups agreed to allow humanitarian aid. The destruction is absolutely systematic. It is house by house that they looted house by house for the civilians, they've looted everything. An institution, the government institutions, they either burnt them, exploded them, 
or uh, they tore out all the machinery, all the technical stuff, and just ripped it apart. The World Food Program and other humanitarian groups are distributing food and other aid, but it has been a challenge to reach everyone in the remote and rough terrain. While the WFP has given aid to 630,000 people, the total number of people in need tops 1.3 million, more than half the region's population. Christine Hakonzi with the WFP in Afar says there are also longer-term concerns. What happens after this? When people go back, how are they going to provide for their children? So uh, we need support from the donors, especially to, for funding for us to provide support to the households in terms of livelihoods. Preliminary assessments by the Afar regional government have determined that about $388 million worth of damage has been done. There is no water, health facilities, or schools functioning in many areas. Mohammed Hussain is the head of the Afar Disaster Prevention and Food Security Coordination Office. To return to the community, we have to put in place the infrastructures needed. We have very limited capacity to undertake all this recovery and the reconstruction activities. So I urge the international community to grab us an attention and even mobilize resources. The World Bank has already provided funds to help the country rebuild. But Hussein says more help is needed for people like Ismail to go home safely. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Samara, Ethiopia. And still in Ethiopia, Amhara State Media says authorities have arrested more than 4,000 people in the northern Amhara region and that the operation is part of a wider crackdown against militia fighters, critics and the press. State security official Desalani Tesu told the Amahara Media Corporation that more than 200 of the suspects are accused of the killings and conducting illegal activities in the name of the Fano paramilitary group. It is not clear why the rest were being detained. In Uganda, civil society and opposition groups said the latest arrest of former presidential candidate Dr. Kiza Besige violates his constitutional rights. Besige, who was arrested after he tried to leave his house to attend a protest against the high prices of goods and services, leads the political pressure group People's Front for Transition. He has called on the government to find solutions to the problem. Activists have also called on the government to reduce taxes on essential products and services to, in their words, ease the burden and challenges that Ugandans face. For reaction and the latest developments, VOA's Peter Clotty reached Atone Matthias Mpuga. is the leader of the minority in the Ugandan parliament. Um, Dr. Bessie is exercising uh, his right as a citizen. And under our constitution, one of the duties of a citizen is exactly what he's doing. And there's nothing illegal, there's nothing unconstitutional about a demonstration. What is illegal is... Uh, a demonstration that is violent. Dr. Besige is not violent. Dr. Besige has not uh, threatened uh, national security. And therefore, arresting him because of uh, protesting and asking others to protest in response to the government inertia and in, in, in action or inaction uh, on the state of the people's welfare is well placed in the law. So the police and their cousins in the military are just overzealous regime operators. And therefore, I, uh, I joined the rest of the country in not only demanding for these military leaves, but uh, even stopping the impunity 
of uh, the armed forces and state operators in uh, abusing and intimidating citizens who uh, wake up to exercise their rights. Well, but uh, Matthias Mpuga, some people suggest that he is breaking the Public Elder Management Act by not following the rules if he wants to demonstrate, and that some of the actions he takes disrupt businesses and traffic, and that is unacceptable, they said. How do you respond to that? Peter, we've been at that. Uh, it's not a new invocation by the regime security to try and invoke the Public Order Management Act, which actually, which act actually, was uh, actually uh, more or less annulled by uh, the Ugandan Constitutional Court. The Constitutional Court uh, uh, a year ago hammered down a decision that rendered uh, Section 8 of the Public Order Management Act, which required uh, police uh, permission and constitutional, and therefore whatever they are saying, uh, they, they are just trying to regurgitate that annulled uh, section of the law. So there's no requirement for Dr. Bessie to get their permission. All that I know is uh, to inform them and they have no own record of ever allowing anybody, even when they are informed. Talking about poverty, the Internal Affairs Minister Kainda Otafire was quoted by the Ugandan's New Vision newspaper as saying poor people will not go to heaven uh, because they insult God through lamentation and accusations every day. Unquote. Uh, basically saying people who do not use tools God has given them do not have to blame him for why they remain poor. What are your thoughts? First of all, it's very erroneous. This country has more serious things to quote. Probably the state media is using that to try and divert people from the real issues. I don't think any serious media should waste their time on uh, Genota Fide, whose poverty background is well known. So let him not try to waste people's time. It should be ignored. And the, the, the new vision should be uh, really condemned for trying to bring and, uh, and promote a social climber like Genota Fide. That was Matthias Mpuga, an attorney and leader of the minority in the Ugandan parliament, speaking to my colleague, Peter Cloti. And still in East Africa, Kenya's port of Mombasa is losing clients to Tanzania. It is benefiting from the decline of imports through Kenya as more cargo destined for the Great Lakes region is diverted to the port in Dar es Salaam. The decline in the flow of goods is due to concerns of potential instability leading up to the August 9th polls. The Kenyan government has, however, assured business people that elections will be peaceful. And Moreno Jambo has more on this story. Kenya is the main route for imports into Uganda with oil from international sources delivered to Kenya's North Rift region. It's where other northern corridor countries such as Uganda, South Sudan, Rwanda and Eastern DR Congo pick up goods to transfer to their markets. As a way of convincing the neighboring states that all is well, the government of Kenya has injected 85 million U.S. dollars on rehabilitation of the medium gauge railway from Kenya to Malaba border between Kenya and Uganda. Carol Kariuki is the chief executive officer of the Kenya Private Sector Alliance. She says there will be safe flow of goods to the neighboring states and across the country 
over the election period. This will ensure seamless connectivity. The Kenya police has its disposal many trained units to manage any insecurities, threats in the country over the election period and support the IBC to conduct the elections and the sectors. So all those will be supported through that period so that there are, there are no eventualities. We know the governing questions around this election is anti-corruption and the economy. According to the latest report by the Mombasa Port Corridor Community Charter, Transit volumes through the Dar es Salaam port grew by 21% in 2021, while those through Port of Mombasa declined by 6.2% during the same period. Betty Miner is Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Industrialization, Trade and Enterprise Development. She says Kenya is working to resolve the issue and assure the region that their goods are safe through the Kenyan port. The ministers of finance in East Africa have addressed the matters of access to critical items in the region and have already made decisions during their pre-budget consultation. So nothing really uh, catches us uh, by surprise. Many importers, especially those from Rwanda and Uganda, are opting to import their goods through the port of Dar es Salaam. They argue that they still have fresh memories of Kenya's 207-208 post-election violence that disrupted transport systems on the Northern Corridor. Kenya's Interior Cabinet Secretary Fred Matiangi said on Monday that there will be no economic disruption due to election chaos. But our country is secure and safe. But no one needs to worry about anything. I have just asked this morning the private sector colleagues to continue making their orders, to continue making their business plans, expanding their businesses, because our country is secure and our country is safe. We will have a peaceful elections. We have no evidence at all that we are going to have any problem of any kind. The Uganda-bound cargo decreased by 5.7% in 2021, while that going to Rwanda dropped by nearly 57%. Kenya is reassuring their customers of security on the route amid heightened campaigns. Kenya's last two general elections did not experience major election-related violence. However, Nairobi is yet to award 63 million U.S. dollars in compensation to 16 Ugandans and Rwandan companies for trucks and goods lost during the post-election violence in 2007. The court ordered payment four years ago. As it looks, Kenya may not win back their port and rail service customers. Tanzania and Uganda in early March signed a freight forwarding agreement to increase the volume of cargo through Dar es Salaam. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Sacramento, California. Debrek Africa continues and let's go to West Africa in Senegal. One of the most prominent events in the world of contemporary African art is kicking off in the Senegalese capital. The 14th edition of the Dakar Biennale features the works of hundreds of artists from around the world, ranging from immersive installations to costumed performances. Anika Hamschlag reports from the festival. About 100 spectators are gathered on Dakar's ocean walkway as dancers outfitted in traditional West African costumes gyrate to the sounds of djembe's. One dancer, dressed as a broomstick, twirls about, while another, donning a mythical lion costume, approaches those filming on cell phones to offer a roar. Behind them, a young woman covered in mud holds still as an artist covers her in powdered pigments. The event is one of hundreds set to take place in Dakar over the next month. 
The official 2022 Biennale selection includes 59 artists from some 30 countries, but hundreds of other spaces, both in Dakar and throughout Senegal, are showcasing art. Even restaurants and hotels have converted their walls into miniature museums. Khalifa Dieng is a scenographer for the National Gallery exhibit, which features works by Senegalese painter El Hajisi. La Biennale de Dakar est unique parce qu'elle regroupe la grande majorité des. He says the Dakar Biennale is unique because it brings together the great majority of audiovisual creators from around the African continent and its diaspora. Nigerian painter Tina Adebowale traveled from her home base in the Netherlands to show her work. She completed an artist residency in Dakar and said she was inspired by the sense of community she found. I love the creative vibe of Senegal as a whole. There's no ego. It's towards one goal, which is art, culture, for the sake of the whole country, the community, the people. I love the collective support that I see. It's a very beautiful spirit, very vibrant. I really admire it. The energy at the festival is perhaps more amplified this year as the 2020 event was postponed due to COVID, making this the first BNL in four years. This year's theme is Ndafa, which means to forge out of the fire in Serer, one of the languages spoken in Senegal. It refers both to the need to recalibrate as we emerge from the pandemic into a new world, as well as to the history of African creation and its influence on contemporary African art. Lumo is one of four official international curators. Her exhibit, titled Havana, Forge of the South, seeks to link Havana with Dakar via shared themes of migration, race, and creolization. Dakar, she says, has become one of Africa's leading art hubs. It was the biennial that's now 32 years old, the different institutions, different artists, and I, I think there's definitely an international trend and race and importance of, of African art. So I think uh, there's many possibilities for Dakar in the future. The event will continue through June 21st. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. The African Development Bank Board of Directors has approved a $1.5 billion facility to help avert what officials call a looming food crisis in Africa as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war and other factors. The bank board said the continent risks shortages of 30 million metric tons of food, especially wheat, maize and soya beans, grown by the two countries at war. Timothy Obiezu has more from Abuja. The bank's group president, Akin Wumiadeshino, says the AFDB's $1.5 billion emergency food production plan targets 20 million smallholder farmers with high-quality seeds ahead of a new planting season that resumes in May. The idea is to make the continent less dependent on food imports by boosting yields of wheat by 11 million tons, maize by 18 million, rice by 6 million, and soybeans by 2.5 million. The intervention will also provide fertilizers and farm extension services, including post-harvest support to farmers. Our $1.5 billion plan will be used to support African countries to produce food rapidly, produce 38 million metric tons of food, in fact. The total value of the additional food production is 12 billion U.S. dollars. The Africa Emergency Food Production Plan will deliver climate-resilient agricultural technologies to 20 million farmers. Majority of those will be women farmers. The initiative will also increase access to fertilizers to enable farmers rapidly grow food. 
The AFDB says since the war in Ukraine started, the price of wheat across many African countries has jumped by over 45% and that fertilizer prices have also shot up by about 300%. AFDB also says Africa faces a fertilizer shortage of 2 million metric tons. As a result, food prices have been impacted significantly. In Nigeria, prices were already affected by the pandemic, insecurity and high local production overhead. Authorities predict a more dire situation for Africa in the near future. The magnitude of food price increases and trade disruptions caused by the Russian-Ukraine conflict have hit Africa harder than other developing regions of the world threatening to topple the continent's food systems already stressed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Africa must prepare for the inevitable global food crisis. The United Nations says between 2018 and 2020, Africa imported $3.7 billion worth of wheat from Russia and another $1.4 billion from Ukraine. Nigeria's Statistics Bureau says last year's import of about $3.1 billion worth of wheat was more than 70% for value imported for year before. In the last three years, the AFDB says 1.8 million farmers in seven African countries have benefited from its agricultural technology initiatives and improved wheat production in Africa by 2.7 metric tons. I'm Tim Theobiezu for VOA's Daybreak Africa in Abuja, Nigeria. In early April, the Republic of the Congo and Rwanda signed several cooperation agreements. In one of them, the Congo-Brazzaville cedes 12,000 hectares of arable land to Rwanda. But the deal continues to elicit various views from the public and some civil society organizations are demanding that Congo's president withdraw from the agreement. Reporter Rosie Pioth has more on this story. In an open letter addressed to the President of the Republic of the Congo and made public last week, several civil society organizations demand the retraction of the framework agreement signed between Rwanda and the Republic of the Congo in early April. The deal aims to promote and protect investment between the two states. It covers 10 sectors including agriculture, industrial development, tourism, transport infrastructure, the development of special economic zone and real estate. Frank Chardin Chibinda is a member of the Consortium of Association for the Promotion of Democratic Governance and the Rule of Law, or CAPGED. He says the transfer of land to Rwanda does not respect the 2015 constitution. It says that no transfer, no exchange, no addition of the national territory is valid without the consent of the Congolese people. They must be consulted by voting in a referendum. He says that sending 12,000 hectares for an unlimited period is dangerous. Rwandans are going to explore this space, and the Congolese will no longer have any right over the land. He says that this agreement does not follow the process laid out in the Constitution. His organization wants the government to respect the proper legal procedure when signing such agreement with external parties like the government of Rwanda. Chibinda says the agreement is an insult to all Congolese. He says that 
the fact that these lands are transferred to Rwanda while the Congolese themselves have the need to boost their own agriculture is shameful. He says, Rwanda, which today has become a model for Africa, does not need land from other countries to develop their agriculture. The president party supports the agreement. Geoffroy Bossa Osebi is a member of the Central Committee of the Holding Congolese Labour Party. He says that the government signed the agreement with Rwanda, which has just made an offer. The deal will be subject to prior ratification by the President of the Republic. His approval follows the authorization given to him by the Parliament, which shall write what is called by a law craving authorization of ratification, which the legislature has not done yet. Civil society groups say the government should give national more support to develop farmland from themselves instead of transferring territory to Rwanda from the same purpose. For VOA News, Rosie Piotin, Brazzaville. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. Thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. And remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vongani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Mm-hmm.